Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the self-proclaimed preeminent number one podcast dedicated to the American Wrestling Association and telling the stories of the AWA. As you can see on the screen, if you are watching, my name is Chris Tubbs. This is my part of the gig. But let's bring in the uh, the other two fellas, as uh, we like to call him, Polish Joe and Mick Karch. And Joe, I, I'm digging the swag this week. I'm digging the swag. Well, I had to plunk it down. Even got, now I know what my name is. Wow. Good. Now well, I, yeah, you're, you're, you're giving Karch residuals there because I think Karch gets a portion of that merchandise money. So I think you're making more money right now from that than you ever did with Vern. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt. I, I made more money now than, than I was Vern. Are you kidding me? What, four cents and he took, you know, a half of that back for, for taxes and his, his porcelana cream and everything else. So I, yeah, I, I did real well with him. Four uh, cents? That's the only time you ever had any cents. Well, <laughs> yeah, good point there. Uh, anyway, guys, we're, we've got something a little bit different today. Uh, before we get into the uh, the special guest, I uh, do want to thank 7th Avenue Pizza. You can see the logo on the upper right-hand corner. Uh, we're getting into the part of the year, guys and gals, where it's getting a little bit warmer. Maybe, you know, you want yourself some pizza, uh, 7th Avenue Pizza. Go check it out. A lot of the local retailers uh, up in the uh, Twin Cities here, the, you know, state of Minnesota, 7thAvenuePizza.com. If for some reason you're having an issue, you can't find it, hit me up on Twitter, uh, Facebook, MySpace, you know, what, whatever you use in terms of your uh, your social media platform. And, of course, you can see the sweatshirt by Polish Joe. Uh, I want to thank Soda Stick as well because they are the official clothing retailer, the clothing provider of, of uh, us here at AWA Unleashed. And we've got the T-shirts. We've got the sweatshirts, uh, the hoodies, everything. Again, if you see it other places, it's not legit. Don't get the bootleg stuff because they might screw up the spelling of AWA. It might be, you know, WAW, which it's not WAW, okay? It's AWA Unleashed, okay? So just remember that. Okay, that being said, Mick, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you. Oh, Mackenzie, yay! On the top rope. There she goes. Ring the bell. That's a disqualification. Fines and suspension. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got uh, something coming up right now here, guys. It's a little bit unique to what we're doing, but I feel like this is one that people are really, really going to enjoy. I've been looking forward to this, guys, for a long time. I believe the uh, the correct term is mark out, but I'm going to let you – I'm going to let you take it here, Mick, and I'm going to get my thoughts together because I'm, like, super-duper-duper duper excited. All right. Well, the the gentleman that I'm going to introduce right now, I have known for a long time, you know, at least at least 30 years or better. Um, when you talk about the modern era of professional wrestling and the guys that are super talented and can do everything and have done everything in the business – uh, no matter what was tossed his way, he did it, and he did it in style. And uh, I can't say enough good things about this guy. Talk about your consummate professional. And I don't know what name we're going to call him, uh, you know, as the as the show goes on, any number of names. But uh, 
the big deal in my estimation. My friend, Barry Darso. And Mick. there he is. There he Mick, is. Well, thank you. I don't know about that gentleman deal, though, but uh, I, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we yeah. have been friends for a long time. Long, long time. And, uh, and Barry, it is such a kick to have you here. And I know a lot of a lot of people are going to be scratching their heads and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, you're an AWA Unleash podcast. You know, we went through our old programs and we don't see, you know, Barry on any of the AWA shows, but we'll, we'll get into that as, as time goes on. Uh, in the meantime, just to have you on the show is such a kick. I know that you are incredibly busy. We talked about that before you got on the air. You're still over, as they say, in the business and, and you're busy. You're on the road all the time. Yeah, I am. I'm very thankful that uh, people still want to see me out there. You know, it's that's half the thing in this business is to, you know, make some money and everything. And now it seems like you make more money now than you did 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's pretty nice. And, and thanks for having me on the show, too. Oh, it, it, it's a pleasure. And as I said, uh, you know, for those who are not familiar, you know, the two or three of you out there who, you know, probably started watching wrestling last week. Um, <laughs> Barry is, uh, again, I don't mean to, to use the hyperbole, Barry, but in so many ways, you've been handed so many roles in the business and you have aced every one of them. And we're going to talk uh, extensively about that, but, you know, talk about your background a little bit in Minnesota. So, uh, Chris, kick it off. All right. And uh, I told you guys this before uh, the show started. Barry was so over with me when, you know, you can see he's got his, you know, demolition smash, one of the, you know, one of the, the personas. But he was so over with me when I was a kid that my cousin Rob and I dressed up as demolition axe and smash when uh, when we were kids. So it is completely an honor here. And I know there's a lot of stuff to get to. But first of all, Barry, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I, I feel like this podcast resonates and one of the reasons that we wanted to get you on is because of your connection to maybe the the Mecca of pro wrestling here in the Twin Cities. I mean, that's Robbinsdale. You look at the the name of guys that came from Robbinsdale, and, I mean, you literally could have a top-notch promotion just with the people from that little region of the Twin Cities. Did you ever want to become a, a wrestler? I mean, was that ever something that was on your radar when, when you were a kid or, you know, growing up with these guys? Well, at, at first, no, but, uh, you know, my brother and myself, we used to watch wrestling Sunday afternoon after church all the time. And, you know, we always thought, God, it'd be great to be a wrestler, but there's no way that the thought would ever, you know, really happen. But after getting a little older, you know, I got to know Kurt Hennig very well. And, you know, his dad became a big Larry the Axe Hennig fan. And then, you know, uh, with Kurt being a friend and his friends and friends and everything, that's, that's kind of how I had the opportunity to get in the business. Um, Eddie Sharkey, who was a bartender down at Grandma B's, um, he kind of, you know, got us all started. And he, when he was bartending, you know, it was uh, the Road Warriors, Rick Rude, myself, you know, and then with Kurt Hennig, we, we ended up getting Eddie Sharkey's camp going. And that's how we all got in the business. So really it was kind of because of Kurt. And Larry is what what got us all really interested in it. So Barry, I got to ask you. This is Polish Joe, by the way, Barry. 
The names that came out of Robbinsdale, it, it's like the mecca of professional wrestling. It's like, what was in the water? Or maybe it was the beer when you were in high school, but what the hell was it? <laughs> well, what was it about Robbinsdale? And then just well, give me a little bit about... Well, I, Go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think it was because of Kurt. You know, we all became Larry the Axe Hennig fans. And we all watched the AWA. And I think it was, you know, kind of everybody's dream was to get into wrestling. But you, you knew it was never going to happen. But then when it finally did happen, all of us that were friends got in. And, and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why, you know, Vern didn't want to hire me. And he didn't want to hire a few other guys. Because I think he was scared that the whole Robbinsdale would take over the whole territory. Sure. And, and I really believe that. And, you know, I talked to Vern a few times about working in the territory and he always says, well, one day, one day, you know, it was never like, well, come on in. And I know he could have used me, but you know, that's why I just kind of stayed away. And then I never called him after that. You know, Barry, that, that kind of springboards me into the next question. You kind of touched on a few things there because I look at that Robbinsdale roster uh, from back in the day. And my God, you know, you talk about guys that made it in the business. So everybody looks at that list and, you know, they'll see Kurt Henning and they'll see, you know, uh, Scott Simpson, they'll see Jesse Ventura, whatever, you know, well, well Jesse was kind of on the, on the fringe there, but Kurt Henning and Larry. And my question was always that why of all people wasn't Barry Darso in the AWA? Because it seemed to me that was absolutely the perfect fit, you know, and, and still to this day, you know, when I look back on those 1980s AWA days, man, you would have just absolutely blended right in. So, now, you know, your theory about Vern is very interesting. Yeah, I, you know, um, I always wanted to go back home, but all the territories that I was in wrestling, I, I did really well. So I really wasn't pushing it to get back. You know, when I was in Mid-South with Bill Watts, that's where I really learned how to wrestle. And that territory was fantastic. And then from there, I went to Florida Championship Wrestling. You know, you couldn't beat that. It was like, why would I want to go to work for Vern? I'm making money in all these other places. Sure, sure. And then when I went to Crockett's territory, so, you know, every once in a while, uh, Vern's territory would call, and Ivan and myself, we'd go work for Vern but through Crockett. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if you can remember the big Kaminsky park. Sure. Yeah. One. Well, that was my dream match, you know, growing up watching the Baron, the crusher and the bruiser. And all of a sudden here, I'm in the ring with these guys. I mean, it was unbelievable. Kaminsky park. Yeah. So, so I did work for Vern every once in a while, but not in the territory. And it was kind of strange. It, it's really interesting. And then, you know, kind of piggybacking off of that, Rick Rude, another guy, uh, you know, Scott Simpson, Nikita Koloff, another guy that didn't work for Vern. What was what was going on there? What was their reasoning behind that? See, I, I think it was Vern really didn't want us in the territory. There's too many from people from Minnesota, and that would have hurt him. Okay. Because, we, cause, you know, when you get 10 guys that are all friends, you could come in and take over that territory pretty easily. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the character of guys that we were with, you know, the Road Warriors, John Nord, you know, I mean, 
pretty strong people, we could have taken over that territory and said, hey, Vern, go take a hike. Well, in hindsight, that probably would have been a better conclusion than what did happen with the AWA. <laughs> yeah. You had a guy from New York come in and take it over, basically, yeah. by forcing Vern out of the business. Right. Yeah, just sad. So with, with you, Barry, I mean, we've seen that, you know, everything that you've done, I mean, you, you were, you know, people got behind you when you were, a, you know, a good guy, fan favorite, the, you know, the baby face, as they say. But I feel like what made you really good was you were such a believable villain. And, and to me, I feel like, you know, th that is where it seemed like just, you know, I looked at you and you were so believable. D did you feel like you were better in either one of those roles? Yeah, you know, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I really took pride in into my characters that I had. And the worst character I ever had was Barry Darso. I couldn't I couldn't be Barry Darso. If if I was a character, if I was Crusher Khrushchev, I really felt like I was that guy that hated America and I loved Russians, you know? So that, that kind of, that was me when I was smash. I was really the guy that I'm going to beat people up. I don't care about anybody. You know, when, you know, when I was the repo man stealing cars, I really wanted to steal cars. That's, that's how I got into my characters. And I think that's what made me a heel. You know, the way I, you know, the heel that I wanted to be is because I really became those characters. What, was there was was there one that you enjoyed more yeah. than the other, or was there one that you looked at and you're like, I I don't really know if this fits you know my personality. You know, um, when I was uh, Demolition Smash, that was my favorite character, but when I was the Blacktop Bully, oh, I love that. That one, I could have went a long ways with, and they cut that short, but that was my favorite gimmick out of all of them, and. The way they had it all set up, uh, you know, in uh, the NWA, the, the way I was in jail, the, the whole program was fantastic. But it was just at a real bad time because it was a change in the guards. It was, you know, Ric Flair was the booker. And then, then that's when all of a sudden, you know, Eric Bischoff is in there and all these other things. There's so many changes that the blacktop bully just kind of went away. And... And, uh, you know, when I had that match with Dustin Rhodes in the truck and got fired, mm -hmm. that was just kind of a way to get rid of that character. And, and I really hated that because it was a fun, fun character. You know, I could have wrestled. I could have wrestled Hulk back then being the blacktop bully if they would have pushed that. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. I, I wanted to kind of follow up. That, like th there's been a lot of, uh, you know, controversy about that. And I believe that was uncensored 94. Um, right. What, I mean, was there was there a specific rule like going into that? Like you couldn't do certain things. Is that what I'm hearing? Cause I mean, I just, I see this from the outside and, and yeah, I was just kind of puzzled as to, it was really good. It was entertaining. And then it was like nothing, nothing went, you know, it didn't go anywhere. Right. It, uh, I mean, it was a huge match that they set up cause you know, they had helicopters, they had cameras on cars. I mean, it was, it was a huge, huge thing. And, uh, Mike Graham was was our booker telling us what to do. And he told us exactly what to do, and, and we did it. And 
you know, they ended up cutting out a lot of the match because there was a lot of blood. There was a lot of, I mean, it was, it was one of the best matches that I've ever been in. And, and when Dustin and I were all done with it, we both looked at each other and went, holy shit, was that unbelievable. And the next day I got home, I got a phone call from Eric Bischoff and he says, Barry, hell of a match. He says, but I got some good news and bad news. And I said, well, Eric, what? He says, uh, well, what do you want first? I says, well, give me the bad news. He says, you're fired. I said, I'm fired? Just got through saying I had the greatest match ever. And he says, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really sorry, but you couldn't have any blood on TV. Oh. And I said, well, well, half of it was the barbed wire that's in there. It, it really happened. And I said, we were told to do everything in there that was that we're supposed to. And he says, well, with the CNN towers, they didn't want any blood on TV and all this stuff and everything. So he said, the good news is I'm going to hire you back. I promise you, but just please go away, go away easy. And I was friends with Eric and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I, I'm so I'm fired. So they fired Dustin and Mike Graham. And I says, well, what about the camera crew? What about everybody? Why don't you fire everybody then? Why just fire us? And it just ended up being that way. But it, it was really a terrible, terrible way to end that part of my career there. But then he hired me back, and I was on a, on a nice contract, and I hardly worked. And I felt terrible by not working because all my life I've always been part of it. And now I'm getting paid to go to TV, not even be on TV. And, and I felt so guilty. It, it just, that was kind of the end of my whole wrestling was after that. It, I, I didn't even want to be in the business anymore. It was like I'm getting something for free now. You know what I mean? You know, what's interesting about that, Barry, is that I know that there were guys, and that was the story about the NWA and, you know, WCW back then, that a lot of guys were collecting that paycheck yep. and, you know, not working for it but a lot of them on the other hand were just fine you know collecting yeah. you know the gravy you know so right. here you say you felt bad about not working that's really something well you know it, it's you know because i really loved wrestling yeah that was my life every time i got in the ring i worked you know a hundred percent of what i could do you know and sometimes maybe it didn't look that way to some people but to me I was working so hard to have the best match that I could have with the person I was with. And it was really hard for me to not do that. You know, and I look back now and I go, Oh, what an idiot. I should just took the money and I would have been healthy. And I wouldn't have a new knee and I have a good back and, you know, but you know, that's just not the way I, my thought process was. So Barry, I want to ask you about demolition in particular, when demolition first appeared or let me actually back up before you actually came on as demolition when you were yeah. approached about being demolition i mean let's let's face facts it was a a uh, a knockoff of the road warriors okay and you were friends with animal and hawk so give me a little bit about what your thought process was about debuting demolition, having the face paint and the spikes and so forth and paying the ultimate compliment 
And by the way, I do have to say that demolition certainly pulled it off very, very successfully. So I'm not taking anything away. But just in the beginning, what was, what was your thought process? So, so why do you say a knockoff? Well, it's not maybe not a knockoff, but but modeled after. Knock and why do you say and why do you say modeled after? Well, as a fan at the time, you know, you, you had the face paint similar to Animal and Hawk, and other people had that too. Oh, very very true. From okay, a, and other people had spikes too, right? Very true, but they so, weren't. So why do why do you say that? Well, I say I'm is, just, is that because what? People out there say, oh, it's a knockoff of them? No, not at all. A knockoff is so, so not a wrong I'm sure they. I'm sure they copied us on a lot of stuff. A lot of the moves we did, they did. Why did they copy us? Why were they knockoffs of us? Oh, no no doubt. I, I, I Like I said, I'm giving demolition its full credit as a fan. Yeah, but you're not. You're calling us knockoffs. I know. We were another team that did something out there that worked for the WWE. And then somebody came out and said, oh, they're knockoffs of the Road Warriors. Well, that's the shits. That ain't, that ain't true. <laughs> and I will give you that. I, I, because we went on our own. We worked different than them. We did things different than them. Everything we did was different than the Road Warriors. So how could we be knockoffs? It's just like if you said, oh, Hulk Hogan did a leg drop on somebody. Well, somebody <laughs> else did a leg drop. They're all copycats of Hulk Hogan now, and I love I love your answer because there, there it was you you, you um, it's not even defending but you explained the the whole thing and I get it I'm just going on to um, at the time that's what the fans were talking about but at the time they so. didn't say that well, they said it, they, at the time they didn't say that they said it way later. Oh, okay. I just I so so because I never even I never even heard that. I never even thought about it when I was getting the job. That was just not even in my process of my thought. When when I when I ended up leaving Crockett's territory, um, Dave Hebner and Earl Hebner and uh, Ricky Steamboat they they uh, called Vince McMahon for me and they said, hey. There's a guy here that you need to talk to. And Vince McMahon knew who I was from TV, Crusher Khrushchev. Mm -hmm. So Vince called me up and he said, hey, Barry, he says, uh, I'd like you to come up. I, I got a little job for you. You know, How would you like to work for me? I said, shoot, yeah. Because that was the pinnacle of your whole career was going up to New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm like 24, 25 years old. I'm the youngest guy in the territory there. Wow. So I get up there and... I sign a non-disclosure, and Vince says, I got a character that we've been talking about for a long time, and we'd really like you to be it. And it all depends upon who your partner, if if he is on board with you being his partner. And I said, okay. So he pulled out all these different pictures, some with spikes, some without spikes, some with masks, masks some with... You know, all, all different pages, all full-color pictures. I said, Vince, I'm on board for whatever you want. I said, I'll, I'll make it happen. So he says, okay, well, um, when do you want to start? I said, I need about three or four months off. I've I been on the road for four years, and I hurt, 
and I need to get my mind right and train. He says, okay, why don't we do this? I'll sign you a contract right now, and why don't we put you on TV in Tampa, Florida, in four months? I said, perfect. So he says, now I got to get a hold of Bill Eady. You know Bill Eady? And I said, yeah, I, I've met Bill before. He says, if he's all right with your part as your partner, he says, we're going to start this thing. So I ended up talking to Bill quite a few times, and we figured out, you know, what we were going to do. And never even dawned on me that this was anything like what the road warriors were. I, I just, it's like, no, this is Barry Darso and Bill Eady, and we got a character thing going on. So the first TV we were at, the people were looking at us like, what the heck is this? Because when it first started out, if it was Randy Cauley, he was one of the moon dogs, and all the people were yelling, moon dog, moon dog. Well, they didn't really know who I was in New York, being Crusher Khrushchev. So, so it just ended up working out perfect where, you know, they didn't know who we are, and we just started kicking ass. And that's kind of how the whole thing got started. And it took probably about four or five months to really start getting over because at that time it was the best tag teams in wrestling. We're all up there. I mean, you know, and you got to kind of fight for your life a little bit with these guys. These guys all know what they're doing and everybody wants to get over and you got to work with people and still get over on them. So it was a a tough road. Thank God Bill Eady was my partner and he helped me really figure out what the business was about. Because by the time I got up up there, I thought I was the greatest wrestler of all time. But little do you know, you you know nothing. In each one of these territories, you learn so much more. And it, it was unbelievable experience. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you, Bill, like, or, uh, uh, Barry, sorry, we're talking about Bill. Um, just kind of the, the follow-up to that, that it seemed like the business at that point you know, looking back on it, I don't think we realized how much it was changing, but you do have a lot of these different teams and, you know, individuals that are coming from different promotions and different territories. And you talk about learning, you know, from people that are coming all over and they're converging in in one area. Did you get the sense that the business itself was almost going to be flipped on its head? Like everything was going to be changing from, what it was because you do have a convergence of so many different people that were, you know, going to New York. Well, it, back then I, I didn't, it, the business wasn't changing. It was, you know, the way you worked, you know, you got better. Okay. You know, when I was in mid South with Bill Watts learning, you know, uh, Nikolai Volkov taught me how to do a lot of stuff and George Weingroff and, uh-huh. you know, Terry Taylor, you know, these guys. And then when I got to Florida, you know, then it was Michael Hayes and, you know, a, a whole different group of people. But when I got to Crockett's territory, Ivan Koloff, he really taught me how to wrestle. And with Nikita and him and myself, we I learned so much working with, you know, other top guys, the Rock and Roll Express, you know, Dusty and Flair, you know. So I, I thought that I knew it all. But then when you get up to New York and then all of a sudden you got all these other different ways that people work, you know, it's all, all the same, 
but you're just you just get better and you learn your craft better. Now, after after uh, being in the WWF for so long, now things started changing at the end. You know where you know there's no more kayfabe and it's it's all the entertainment business. You know now all of a sudden, instead of telling the story, it's we want more excitement on the TV match. You know, and then then that's when it all kind of started when. You know, the 15-minute TV match went to six minutes. Yeah. And you, and you had to have a good match. You know, it's nonstop, no story. And then pretty soon they wanted more high-flying. And then, you know, and so that's how it's changed over the years to now, you know. But I don't know if you saw any WrestleMania, but some of them, you know, like like uh, uh, Charlotte Flair's match, they took their time in a lot of the places yes. on that match. So now it's getting back to where they got to tell the story again because people aren't watching that little five minute match anymore. It's, it's not, there's no excitement to it. You know, Barry, it's interesting that uh, uh, Nick Bockwinkle, when, when he went to WWF as an agent in 1987, had a conversation with Nick about, you know, the differences between the WWF and, and the AWA, which was still around at the time and NWA, and we talked about that very thing, you know, the, the nature of the matches changing, especially on television. And Nick said it's because of the audience. He said the audience now in this day and age, they want crash TV. They don't yeah. want anything, you know, that, that spread out over even an extra five, six minutes. They want boom, 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 boom. What, what do you think about that theory? You know, you're exactly right. And, and Mick. You've been around so long. You've talked to so many top guys, and you know it, it's. I, I look at what your career is too, and and I love it because you've you've met everybody in this business. Well, you, I appreciate that. It, well, serious, it's, but it's exactly right. The the crowds change, and you know a different crowd watches AEW than watches the WWF, mm -hmm. and just like back when, you know the Road Warriors were in the NWA and I was in the WWA, it was two different crowds. And each each match, you know, it's kind of hard to explain, but it, as the years go by, the the new kids come up and they're kind of bored with watching something slow. They need to see things fast. But then the parents still want to see the story. You know, so it's kind of it gives it mixed messages where you have to have all the stuff on the TV for everybody because the parents bring the kids to the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's how I've always seen it. So you got, you have to do things for both of them. And when you tell that story, the story might be just faster than it used to be. And, and that was the key is to figure out how to do that. That that's really interesting. And to that point, Barry, do you think, I, I mean, in my estimation, in this day and age, there's such a blurring of the heels and the baby faces. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, the baby faces might be getting booed in an arena or something. Do you think the art of telling the story is lost on today's kids because they only have, you know, if they make it in WWE, you know, they, they got five minutes to tell the story on television. So, you know, back in the day, the feud was on and on and on, and your matches were half hour, 45 minutes or an hour. Is the art of telling the story gone? 
the art is gone that way, but they're, they have another way to get you as a heel. And that's the commentators. And, you know, they, they make the people boo, you know, they, you know, they, they tell the people what's going on, you know, right away. The commentators, this guy's a bad guy. Well, then the people go, well, he's a bad guy. So they tell it faster now than, than the wrestler telling the story. I mean, when, when, when they get a script at the beginning of the match that tells them exactly what they got to do and what they got to say, each person loses who they really are because they're the people that the office wants them to be, not the person that they want to be. And then they have to grow into that person. Where like when I was telling you, when I, when I became the repo man, I really wanted to steal cars. Mm -hmm. That was my character. You know, that was me. I wasn't the office telling me to do that. So you could work differently because that's, that's how you wanted to work. But eventually all these guys are so good now that they do get in the character. I mean, these guys wrestling now, they're doing things that I can't believe they're even doing. And, and their, their careers ain't going to last very long because, because of it either. But, you know, phenomenal wrestlers. And they're making millions of dollars now, too. You know, it's interesting that you say that the careers are not going to last that long. I mean, and obviously a lot of that has to do with the, the high flying and, you know, going through six, seven tables and jumping from balconies and, and so on and so forth. You know, far cry from back in the 80s where maybe you had one scaffold match a year. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. But so given given all that, you know, and, and, and looking back on your 1980s days as opposed to now, if the script was flipped a little bit, you fast forward 30 years, would you get into the wrestling? Would you have had the same desire to get into wrestling that you did back then? And is today's style conducive to something that you would have enjoyed? You know, I, uh, I would have still wanted to be in wrestling. It's because it's wrestling, but I would have had to change everything. I would have had to change my way of training my way of, you know, uh, you know, my dieting, I, I have to, you know, be a completely different person than I was, you know what I mean? Cause, cause you're working different. You know, the one thing, uh, ax and smash always did. We took pride in never blowing up when we were in the ring, we could wrestle anybody. We could wrestle for an hour. It didn't matter who it was. We wouldn't get tired, but there's other times when we didn't train like that, where I have other characters where I couldn't go an hour or a half hour. You know what I mean? You're out drinking beer the night before and for a week and eating pizza. And, you know, it's like, but that's not what, what it was all about. When you knew you had to go against guys where you had hour broadways and all of a sudden you're dieting, you're watching what you're eating, you're training different and, you know, but you know, these guys now are so lean, you know, they're, you know, a big guy now, the average guy is 230 pounds. That's, yeah. that's the big guy. Right. I mean, the lightest I've ever been was 265, I think, in first grade. Barry, I'm going to stick with the uh, 80s since we're sort of in that period. All right. Um, I was working, I was doing Vern's TV at the time. Um, and in... 19 up until about 1987 Vern still had 
some success. Yeah. But, I mean, shit, in 87, I was, what, uh, 22 years old myself. I could see that what the AWA was in 87 wasn't what it was when I was watching it in high school in the early 80s when Hogan came in and and, uh, the Road Warriors and, and so forth. When what was the talk in the locker room at W NWA WCW whatever you want to call it? What was the talk in the locker room about the AWA? And then I'll expand on that a little bit and ask what was the sense in the NWA as well with this juggernaut of the WWF at the time expanding and growing and coming into everybody's territory. Well, you know, it, it's funny uh, you say that because it was a real hush-hush thing to start with. And when, you know, every, every, the, the biggest thing in wrestling back then was the AWA. Everybody wanted to be in the AWA because you worked the big towns all over the country. Everybody made good money. Uh, Vern really did treat People, you know, I I don't know if he treated everybody great, but, you know, you did get good paydays and you were home a lot. It was like the premier territory. Everybody wanted to go there. But when when Hulk Hogan did the Rocky movie and he came back, it just popped Vern's territory bigger than ever. And, you know, you get guys like Nick Bockwinkle who did the angles with Vern for so many years and everything, and all of a sudden you got a guy – Hulk Hogan and Nick Bockwinkel. I mean, it just, it was incredible. So now when you looked at how Hulk Hogan popped that territory, the junkyard dog popped the territory down in Louisiana. You had, you know, Ric Flair somewhere, you know, all the top guys in all the territories around. Uh, in Dallas, you got the Von Erics, you got whatever. So now all of a sudden Vince says to his dad, I'm going to take over the world. And Vince's dad says, no, you're not going to do that because we're not going to do that to the other promoters. And Vince Jr. says, oh, no, I'm going to do that. So what Vince did was he went he talked to Hulk Hogan. Then he went and talked to the junkyard dog, and he talked to all the top guys in these territories. And from what I heard, he went to the promoters and says, I'm going to take your territory. I'll buy your territory. But, you know, you're going to get this much money. And, you know, Vern says, oh, the hell you are. You ain't taking me over. And Don Owens said that. And Crockett said, you know, all these people. Well, Vince went in and offered these people so much money, he took the top guys from every territory. So all of us mm-hmm. guys in the middle are going, what the hell is going on? Because we don't know that this is happening. And I can remember Jim Duggan coming up to me and saying, hey, Barry, has Vince ever talked to you? And I said, no, he hasn't. I said, well, what about it? He goes, he just offered me a big chunk of money. He says, so big, I got to go. So when he took the top guys from every territory and had USA TV, that's what did the whole thing. And Jimmy Superfly Snooker flew off the top of the cage and landed on the guy. Everybody who watched TV went, oh, my God, this is what we're going to do. That was the end of all of the territories. That was the start of the end of it. So when the road warriors went in there and, you know, the guys after Hulk left, they were just hanging on. It was no longer, 
the AWA territory anymore. You know, it was, uh, there was wrestling going on, but the big thing was New York. And then it was, then it was, uh, uh, Georgia championship wrestling and all that with TBS, you know? So that's when all the territory, but it took years for it to go down. But the talk was, was, you know, why do we want to go to the AWA anymore? Why do you want to go to mid South? We want to go to New York or we want to be on TBS, the big stations. Very, very interesting point about Vince, you know, picking everybody's talent. And, and I remember when when it really hit with the AWA, Hulk Hogan and, and uh, David Schultz, Dr. D, were on top. Yep. And all of a sudden, Vince has taken Vern's main event. He took Gene Okerlund. He took everybody. Up to and including guys that had been AWA mainstays for years and years, and Vince really had no intention of using them in any major capacity outside of maybe like a crusher in Milwaukee, yep. you know, that kind of thing. Um, so as you said, you know, if Vince's intention was to bleed the territories of anything that they had, Man, he sure did it, whether or not he needed the guys or not. It was just the perception, hey, Crusher and Mad Dog are going there too now. The AWA is nothing. Right. That's that's, when he said he was going to take over the world, that was the only way he could really do it. He took the top guys and killed all the territories. But, you know, that's that was the vision he had. And when he knew he could get USA TV, he knew that that was on all over the country and, and he could do that. If he had the top guys from every territory, then every territory would want to watch their top guys on his TV. Absolutely. I mean, it, it just, you know, no matter what anybody says about Vince, Vince is a freaking genius, you know, mm-hmm. and he's made a lot of mistakes, but he's done so many good things for this business. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys, you know, they don't like him, you know, they hate him, they do this. But when you think about what he's done, He's changed this business so many times, and now he just sold it for how many billions of dollars? I mean, the guy knows what the hell's going on. Uh, Going back to the first WrestleMania, uh, I wasn't there, but I hear that Vince really at that point was kind of rolling the dice. You know, that this was going to be, he was going all in or nothing. And, you know, and again, whether people like him or not, good God, I mean, what a risky move. He put it all on the table, and now here we are, you know, 35, 40 years later. And like you said, he sold it for, what, $9 billion or whatever? So you can't argue with success. Well, yeah, and then now, instead of WrestleMania one night, they got WrestleMania two nights sold out. Now, the next thing you're going to do, they're going to have it three nights probably because they'll have They'll have an MAA fight. And then, you know, it'll be four nights because they need two for each of them. Wow. I mean, it's uh, what a business. I can remember way back when somebody was saying it was a, a $19 billion year is what, what was brought in um, from all the merchandise, all the wrestling, everything. I, I wonder what it is now, you know? Would there, I, I think it's an obvious answer. There was nothing that Vern could do. There was nothing anybody could do at that time. Once the it was inevitable. Yeah. Um, if you're Vern, what, what I didn't like, 
And I think this is the most ridiculous thing. If if you're in competition with somebody, I don't care if you're a, a supermarket, a department store, or pro wrestling, you don't talk about the competition. And I remember, you know, even in the NWA, you know, all of a sudden, you know, their their phrase, their catchphrase was we wrestle. Uh, in the right. AWA, you know, Vernon, you know, Wally would come on television and, t- and say, don't be fooled by, you know, these guys that are coming in next week. We're the guys that know how to wrestle. Right. At that point, that does you no good except for people, you know, even the casual fan is going to say, hey, sour grapes. You know, this is we know what you're doing here and we're not buying it. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I you know, Vern was in a tough situation when he lost his top guys, but he should have made more top guys, and he could have kept the territory going. It, it should have never even came to the point where the AWA ever went bad. I mean, there there's so many wrestlers out there that he could have pushed. They might not have been Hulk Hogan, but they would have been the next step under Hulk Hogan, you know, that that could have been a star and could have kept the TVs going. But somehow they I think they lost their way in how they started their own territory and made it go. You know what I mean? They were so they, they were so upset about what Vince was doing. They forgot about what they were doing on their local TVs. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Sure. It's like when Kurt became their champion. They could have pushed Kurt and, you know, or whoever it was, and it, it would have been just an incredible territory, just just like Crockett's territory was. And, and it was all TV and who the booker was and made it work. That's what makes the whole business. I mean, you know, when, when you turn a TV on and you go, oh, what the heck just happened there? That's the show you're going to watch. It, it, it never happened again. Right. Yeah, very, very good point. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why the territory didn't go from a production standpoint right on down the line. You know, every everybody was gone. Um, Vern, you know, of course, he tried to work with some of the other promoters, you know, with whether it was Dallas or, you know, Crockett or Jared or whatever. And the story was always now the promotions are button heads. Now the promotion was their own guy on top. Is that what your perception was too? That the, you know, and Vince is watching this happen, and right. he's counting his money. They're just cannibalizing each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if each territory would have stayed their territory, they could have had their own WrestleMania against each other, oh. and it would have been huge because it would have been interesting. But instead, they all stayed apart. They all cried and sour grapes, and then they they didn't. They didn't try. It was it was like well, this is the end of us. And and maybe they just all ran out of money or you know, there's so many different things that are involved in it. And the TV people might have said, you know what, we don't want you on TV anymore. But it, it just seemed like it just you know, the territory just went away so fast. Yeah, well, sure yeah. I mean they, they actually did try with Super Clash three. Yeah. Um it, December of eighty eight, I was there in Chicago. Um, going on what you said, Barry, it was that attempt was a unsuccessful because all of the promoters had a, you know, a dick measuring contest for every single match, but it was too late 
I think, by that point for them to do what you said you wanted to do. They maybe they should have probably tried to do that maybe in 86 or 87. And I guess they they sort of tried Pro Wrestling USA, you know, the the, the combination. That was a a short-lived run. But there again, the promoters got in the way of themselves. Joe, you're a very wise man. (laughs) <laughs> well i appreciate it um, i think we're getting ready to, to to wrap up here and i wanted to leave enough time for this we've talked um his, his name's been brought up a lot vince love him or hate him yep. the guy deserves his credit for turning a million dollar gamble on wrestlemania one into a nine billion dollar sale what was what was your personal relationship with Vince like? You know, I, I really, uh, I, I liked Vince. Vince was, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I'm kind of a nice guy. I, I don't hate anybody. I, you know, tell the truth about everything. I don't lie, steal, whatever. I like to work for my money. And he, and he knew that. And I told him when I went up there and every conversation I ever had with Vince wasn't really business. It was, we were friends in business, you know, he would come up with something to me and I could actually say to him, Vince, do you mind if I did it this way or Bill and I did it this way? And he would say, definitely, you do whatever you think was right. You know what I mean? And the the conversations that I had with him wasn't about wrestling all the time. It was about my family, his family and all that. So it was it was more than just a business for us and that's that's where I, I think I was different than a lot of guys everything was business for everybody and the one thing I always tell people is I was never you know smash outside the ring or crusher Khrushchev I was Barry Darso and that's how I was when I was with him I was Barry Darso and Bill and I uh, we were just in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, and we did a couple interviews there. And somebody says, well, how did you guys, you know, last so long? And, you know, you're still on the road doing these signings and everything. And I said, because we're Bill and Barry, we're not the demolition. Mm-hmm. We're, we have families. We, we, you know, he was a school teacher. I owned a business. It's, it wasn't wrestling, wasn't our whole life. And that's, that's how it was with Vince. And I think Vince knew that, at any time, I would just leave. It didn't, it, you know, if something wasn't right, thanks, Vince, I'm gone. I'll get a job somewhere else. I'll go to Japan. I'll go to WC, you know, whatever. And he knew that. So that's that was kind of the relationship we had. Barry, you know, you're, you're talking about your personal relationship with Vince and how it wasn't always talk about wrestling. It was more on a, on a personal level, you know which to me is very interesting because when you think about like an AWA roster back, back in the late 1980s, maybe they had 30 guys on the roster. Vince has all these guys and all these shows, you know, sometimes two, three shows a day. So can, can he as the owner develop the kind of a personal relationship that maybe a guy in a smaller territory like the AWA kid uh, could, where Vern would talk to Kurt Hennig, you know, as as the wrestler as opposed to the family man, were the were the conditions in the surroundings 
such that really Vince had too much business. So it was like a pleasure to him to get to know a guy on a personal level. You know, you're exactly right. You know, right now, he's probably, you know, he's got quite a few friends, you know, four or five of the top guys he talks to all the time. But when there'd be a line out his office door waiting for people to talk to him. And a lot of times he would say, hey, get Barry in here. I'd go up to the head of the line. I'd go in and we'd talk. We wouldn't even talk business. And it was because everybody is just on him 24 hours a day. I want this. I need this. Can I do this? You know, and and that's what he's running into now. But he has buffers now, you know, so he only talks to the people he wants to. But back then he had to talk to everybody. And and Bill and I, Bill was the same. Bill and I would go in there and we'd laugh and, you know, do whatever and talk about two minutes business. Now, he loved to talk to us. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right. He can't have that relationship with everybody. He just can't. So the relationships he had, I think he really enjoyed. It brought him down to another level, you know. There you he, go. He wasn't, no, he, he wasn't no longer Vince McMahon. He was one of the guys there for a little bit. Boy, what a what a great take on it. You know, it kind of humanized Vince as opposed to, you know, way up on the pedestal, we, we got the boss in the ivory tower, you know. Hey, but, but don't get me wrong. He loved that more than anything. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right now, the only reason why he's on TV is because he needs to be seen as Vince McMahon. Can you imagine him not being on TV for two or three years? No. It'd it kill him. He'd probably die. <laughs> wow. And uh, with that, Barry, we're going to wrap up part one. I know there's still a, a few more things that we want to talk about. There's a, a lot of really good word association that I know uh, Mick and Joe want to get into. Uh, along with a couple of uh, topics that you were talking about, want to follow up. So we're going to break now. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to uh, break it into part two, and okay. uh, we'll uh, we'll be great. So we'll take a little bit of a break, and then uh, we'll record, and the next one will be aired next week. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here, guys. Uh, follow us on all of our social media platforms, AWA Unleashed on Twitter. Uh, join our fan page. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, you guys. Uh, that's the best way. Uh, AWA Unleashed on YouTube. I mean, my God, Mick will pay for it. This shit's free. Okay, <laughs> Mick will pay for it. Well, I want to see the cat again. Don't worry about the cat. The cat will make it to its appearance several times. I guarantee you. You don't need to play the cat's entrance music or any. Oh, yeah, there you go. Look, there it is. Oh, look, <laughs> on cue. On cue. On cue. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs>